0: Need up a look on the ASA. Oh my gosh. they are all going against the wind.
1: It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere.
0: states it's a worldwide phenomenon
1: that ufo podcast is powered by zencaster zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts the open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell features include hd video recording studio quality sound chat and footnotes all running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and delighted to welcome onto the show with me today retired US Air Force, author of over 100 books and UFO investigator Kevin Randall. Kevin, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much, but I do make, need to make one quick correction. I'm a retired oh. army officer.
1: Ah, my my bad. Do you know what? Well, no, Let- not
0: really, not really, because I did spend some time in the air force as well. So, <laughs> do,
1: do you know what that is? When I've seen USAF, on I, I think I just automatically go into. Uh, that on the the book but yeah that's thank you for correcting me I'll and I think I get away with it being British as well don't I that we're we're not as au fait with the American military as perhaps someone on the other side of the pond would be Uh, but Kevin you've got quite an interesting background let alone what you've been involved in over the decades in terms of UFOs what's your your journey been like into ufology and UFOs was it something you had an interest in as a child or was it something that came much later
0: well I always blame my mother for my interest she was a fan of science fiction, which is about alien visitation and interstellar flight and alien civilizations and that sort of thing. And when I was a youngster, and this dates me, she took me to the movie Earth versus the Flying Saucers. And that kind of sparked my interest because, of course, flying saucers were talking about alien civilizations and interstellar flight and alien visitation. So it's sort of the same thing, moving it from the realm of science fiction into the realm of um, reality. Uh, so that kind of sparked my interest. Back in the 1960s, when I got very interested in UFOs, uh, the, the attitude was that, well, we just they're just blobs of light in the distance. They're indistinct objects. They're, they're things that can't really be identified because of uh, th- those sorts of problems. And a friend of mine's mother had had a UFO sighting, a flying saucer sighting. So I asked him if I could meet with her, and she, of course, agreed. And the only question I really wanted answered was, was it a distinct object? And she said it was an object hovering about 200 feet over the barn. They lived on a ranch in South Dakota, if I remember correctly. And she said it had very distinct edges, very, very sharp, crisp edges. So it wasn't something seen in the distance. It wasn't a blob of light. It was a structured craft she had seen. And that sort of sparked my um, investigative nature as well, getting the answers for myself. And that, of course, has carried on through um, since since that time. I've worked on a lot of cases and done an awful lot of infield work, chased down an awful lot of uh, sightings and interviewed an awful lot of witnesses to UFOs and um, and uh, and that sort of thing. My military career, of course, spans decades as well. I started out as a, a helicopter pilot. I learned that the Army, the United States Army, was training high school graduates as helicopter pilots. And so I joined the Army to learn to become a helicopter pilot and was sent to Vietnam as a pilot and, at 19, was an aircraft commander, spent a tour in Vietnam, came back, got out of the Army, went to college, got a degree and took ROTC. Now, the, the thing is, in the American military, those of us who were high school graduates and went through that program were appointed ward officers. So we were the lowest ranking officer, but we weren't really commissioned, which made us eligible to take ROTC, the Reserve Officers Training course. So while I was in college, I took the last two years of college as in ROTC and was commissioned as an officer in the Air Force. So I spent a number of years in the Air Force's in a number of different roles, mainly as an intelligence officer uh, for them in a number of different places, got out of the army. After 9-11, I joined the Iowa National Guard, which is an army unit as an intelligence officer, and eventually retired from that as a lieutenant colonel, having spent a tour in Iraq. So I applied all that knowledge I gained as an intelligence officer to the investigations that I conducted uh, specifically with Roswell. I was invited into the Roswell case by the Center for UFO Studies because they knew of my military background, and a lot of the witnesses that we would be talking to had military backgrounds or retired military officers, and they thought I'd be able to relate with them more and understand the lingo a little bit better than someone who had not served in the military. So that kind of was the genesis of my um, invitation into the Roswell case with Don Schmidt. And we spent a great deal of time in Roswell, New Mexico, talking to witnesses, ferreting out new witnesses and uh, getting recordings, both um, video and audio recordings of a large number of witnesses, talked to some witnesses. I was the only one who talked to a a couple of the witnesses, the way things worked out. Um, Edwin Easley springs to mind. He was a provost marshal in Roswell in 1947 provost marshal being like the chief of police on the air base he was responsible for security and that sort of thing and i talked to him a number of times and the one thing that sticks in my mind talking to him and, and some of it was recorded and some of it was not given the circumstances but i was talking to him about uh, the, the case and i said are we following the right path and he said what do you mean and i said well we think it's extraterrestrial and he said, let me put it this way, it's not the wrong path. So we, in essence, confirmed the extraterrestrial nature of the Roswell case. And we had a number of officers, high-ranking officers in Roswell in 1947, confirm that sort of a uh, an event, the single uh, exception being one of the, um, being a guy named Barrelclaw, who is a retired colonel. And he said, no, nothing like that happened. He's the only member of General Ramey's staff that we were, or Colonel Ramey, I'm sorry, Colonel Blanchard's staff, that we were able to talk to who denied anything happened. All the others that we talked to said, yeah, it was something, something extraterrestrial." And, and this goes from the highest ranking officers on the base down to the lowest ranking enlisted soldiers on the base that we were able to talk to privates and uh, corporals and uh, buck sergeants who said essentially the same thing. So we had a wide range of that sort of thing. So that kind of give you a background of my interest in UFOs. And, and from there, of course it expanded and I was doing a number of books. I'd, I'd been writing UFO articles And I I say I went to college on what I called the Saga Scholarship. Saga was a men's magazine, not like Playboy or Penthouse, but it it just was articles that catered to men. And there might be a scantily clad picture of a woman in the magazine once in a while, but it really didn't. That wasn't the focus. It was the articles geared toward men. And they paid enough money. I was able to write an article a semester for the magazine and get paid for it. And that paid my uh, tuition except for ten dollars. So uh, I, I say I went to, to college on, a, on the Saga Scholarship, and I collected the um, magazine articles into a, a book later on in 1989 and added some new material to that. And then the second UFO book I did was on Roswell, and from there it's expanded out. I've done 25 or 28 UFO books. So I've done a lot of research into it, and I understand what's going on in the, the world of UFOs.
1: That's an incredible, thanks for the backstory because it's a wonderful history you've put into just a couple of minutes there, almost six or seven decades. After all that time, what is still driving you to write about the subject of UFOs? Because there's so many in this topic and in a far shorter time become disillusioned or, you know, they fall out of love with it, but you've kept that that passion to keep writing even now.
0: One of my goals in life was to be a writer. And you mentioned I've, I've published, I lost count of 125 books. I, I, it's somewhere over that number. But it, it's science fiction, it's action adventure, and it's UFOs. And uh, so I've uh, always wanted to be a writer. So this is one way I could express my, my opinions that way. But the subject always fascinated me as well. And I had a good friend, um, Wilson Bob Tucker, and those who are into science fiction and science fiction conventions would know Bob Tucker, um, wrote a number of science fiction books, really good science fiction books, but never got the kind of publicity that Isaac Asimov or a uh, Ray Bradbury got, but he was an incredible writer. And uh, with, with that sort of thing going on um, we wanted to, you know, it, it, well the, the point was that, that um, at one point talking to Bob Tucker is that he explained That he was retired from writing. And as a much younger person, I couldn't understand that, why you would retire from writing. And here I am now at an age commensurate with what he was at the time, and I'm still writing. Um, I have a book due to Philip Mantle called Understanding Roswell. Actually, it was due a number of weeks ago. I'm a little late on it. But I, it's almost finished now and, and will be in time for the 75th anniversary. But it's just sort of a drive. I just feel the the urge to continue writing. And uh, because in the last year or so, uh, actually, the last six months, I've, I've had to do three UFO books. You know, I've been requested to do the books. The Level Land sighting, which we'll talk about, I guess, a little later, is what I think of as the second most important UFO sighting. Because of the number of people involved in the interactions with the environment, but it's just a story that I wanted to tell, and I think that's the whole point. I continue to want to tell the story, so I just can't see myself retiring. I can see myself slowing down, <laughs> and uh, you know, for publishing fewer books, but I just can't. Uh, I just can't see a retirement from. So it's a kind of the desire to tell the stories, to engage people in things that interest me, and continue the research into the UFO phenomenon until we get a definitive answer.
1: Well, that passion and drive is is taking you to write about Leveland, which we're, of course, going to talk about, and I'd like to do that now. Um, the events of Leveland at West Texas, I believe, it was November 1957. Can you tell us a little bit, if you remember, when you first heard about this particular event?
0: It's always been... An uh, uh, interest of mine because of the nature of the of the of the sightings, it was uh, people at a number of different locations uh, independently reporting to the sheriff this thing had come close to the ground or landed on the ground near the car, installed the engine, and put out the headlights and that sort of thing and and looking at that whole group of sightings in November of nineteen fifty seven so I've been interested in it for a long time. It was only recently that um I began to understand the importance of it. A fellow named Don Berlinson, who lives in Roswell, Roswell being three hours by car from Leveland. Leveland, for those who want to look on a map, is right near Lubbock, Texas, in the panhandle of Texas. So if you can't find Leveland, just go a little bit west of of Lubbock, and and that's where Leveland is, had um, interviewed the widow of the sheriff back in um, around the year 2000. And she told him some things that were very interesting to me and kind of inspired me to look a little bit deeper into it. One of the things I discovered is if you look at the Air Force file, the Project Blue Book file on Level Land, they interview the sheriff whose name is Weir Clem, a name I positively hate, I wish it was something like Tom Collins or, well, Jim Beam, for that matter, or James Bond, some good, good name, not Weir Clem. But he... Um, had told the Air Force, according to their file, well, he eventually was interested enough because there had been enough sightings been reported to him that they were going to go out and look for it. And he saw the object in the distance. He said it was just a streak of light in sight for two seconds. That's what it says in the Air Force file. I found documentation printed in newspapers prior to the Air Force investigation, where he was talking about seeing a oval-shaped object that was bright red And then later on, a fellow named Don Berliner, yes, there's a lot of Dons in this conversation. Don Berliner in the mid-1970s talked to the sheriff, talked to Sheriff Clem. And Clem again said that he'd seen the object. So we've got him saying it prior to the Air Force investigation and then somewhat later after the Air Force had written down what he had to say. The other thing that came out, and we're back to Don Berlinson now, he learned that the mechanic for the sheriff's department was still alive in In two thousand, and interviewed him and said that the sheriff had come into the shop and wanted his car checked out the next day. The only reason the sheriff would have had his car checked out the next day is if he'd gotten close enough to the object that it stalled. It. So we have documentation saying you get close enough to it to see an object, and then we have information that says his car was stalled. Now, what be what makes this even more important than some of the other sightings of in that short time frame of two and a half hours in Level Land, is that he was in sort of a mini convoy. He was in one of the sheriff's department car with a deputy. Behind him was a state police car. I think it's, I think then it was still, it was called the department, uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety. That's what it was when I lived there in the 1960s. And I think it was that in 1957. So now you have state police involved. And behind, behind them was a third car with Air Force officers in it. This tells me that they got close enough that their cars were stalled. And that tells me the Air Force officers observed the phenomenon of the car engines being stalled and the object, the bright red glowing object being close enough that they could see what it was. But there's nothing in the Air Force file that talks about an investigation or interrogation of the Air Force officers involved. All we have are six Different interviews conducted um, two or three days later by a staff sergeant that came down from Colorado Springs and um, interviewed the sheriff, a couple of the witnesses and uh, let it go at that. Didn't do a comprehensive investigation. That was it. Now, years later, many years later, I was able to find the names of many, many people who were involved based not only on uh, what the Air Force report said, the Air Force documents say, but the newspaper files that we could go through and we'd find witnesses in there that uh, were interviewed. The um, APRO Bulletin, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, which was a civilian organization, was involved in the investigation in 1957, as was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which is also a civilian organization based in Washington, D.C. They had one of their investigators out there talking to people. So looking at all these documents created at that time, we were able to Find the names of many, many other people who were involved. The sheriff said that uh, he had received dozens of phone calls about this, which su- suggests additional witnesses as well. So it's a it's a case with many, many witnesses at independent locations reporting the same phenomenon. The sheriff also, at least according to the the, the wife, the widow, said that there had been landing traces on a on a ranch outside of town. I think it was north of town, Burlinson went there and interviewed the the widow of the rancher, but the rancher's daughter as well. And the rancher and the daughter went out and saw the burned area, as did the sheriff. So now we have landing traces on the ground, which, had they been researched properly in 1957, might have presented us with some very interesting data. We know that it interacted with the environment by stalling the car engines and filling, uh, filling radios with static and putting out the headlights. And when the object left left and the cars could be restarted, and there was only one case where the guy said the car started spontaneously but the cars could be started. So they they stopped working at the close approach of the UFO and began working again when the UFO was gone. So we've got an interaction with the environment and we have many independent witnesses. Think of the data we have could have, could have collected at that time had NICAP not got involved in, with the Air Force in an argument over the number of witnesses. So the Air Force successfully diverted the conversation from what happened to how many witnesses there really were.
1: Now, am I right and correct me here that uh, Dr. Alan Heinick was involved and this was before Blue Book was official. It was Project Sign. He was a consultant at the time and he was involved in uh, explaining the event as being prosaic. But if I'm correct, he wasn't actually involved in investigation and had only seen that Air Force report.
0: Heineck was not involved directly with the Leveland case. Heineck came on board as a scientific consultant to, I think, Project Sign, as you said, which was been 1948. And he continued in that mission almost through the end of uh, Project Blue Book, uh, the 22 years for Sign to Grudge to Blue Book. But he had nothing really to do with uh, Leveland. The investigator, the official investigator was a staff sergeant, uh, Norman Barth, who came out of an air intelligence service squadron in um Colorado Springs and flew down to Reese Air Force Base, Reese Air Force Base being in Lubbock. And then it's just a short drive to Level Land from there. So they didn't spend a lot of money on, on the investigation. But the official conclusion, which is still registered in the Project Blue Book files today in the ma- master index that was created, is it was ball lightning. Well, anybody who knows anything about ball lightning knows that uh, there's still an argument about whether there is such a thing as ball lightning. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the descriptions of it is something that's very small, eighteen inches, two feet in diameter, um, and very short-lived—a matter of seconds. So it's a glowing ball of blue fire, so to speak, that that uh, winks out of existence rapidly. We're talking about sightings of something that was bright red for the most part. Pedro Sacito, who is the first person to call the Loveland sheriff uh, at I think ten thirty that night on November second, uh, said it was a gr- brightly glowing blue object that landed close to his truck, stalled the truck. He was so frightened he dived out of the truck. The passenger was even more petrified and sat in the, the passenger's see while well, the object sat on the ground and then it turned to a bright glowing red and it took off and then the truck could be restarted. So we have the descriptions of the color changes, but for the most part, people were talking about a bright red object on, on the ground that was in uh, sight for minutes. The whole series of sightings in Land took place over about two, two and a half hours on November 2nd into uh, November, the morning of November 3rd. Uh, I think one of the witnesses talked about sitting there watching it for 15 minutes. Another said he watched it for five minutes. So no matter how you look at it, ball lightning is not a uh, credible answer for what happened in Roswell. Or, I'm sorry, in Land, <laughs> Roswell just pops into my mind because I'm finished the book on Roswell now.
1: <laughs> well, well, I was going to ask on that, like, is there anything particularly special about Leveland in your research and in your investigations that this event happened here? was there anything nothing, nearby or
0: nothing nothing um with, with roswell you can you can talk about the uh, atomic strike force being based at roswell and mm-hmm. you can look at new mexico where not that far from roswell we're firing rockets into the atmosphere higher than ever before and now of course we've gone to the moon but uh, um you you if if you're interstellar race, if you're a space traveling race and you find a civilization that's a verge, on the verge of taking its first steps into space and they have atomic weapons, you're going to be concerned about those people. But Level Land, no, it, there's nothing special about it other than it's three hours from Roswell. Now, um, an hour or so after the sightings ended in, in, in Level Land, there were sightings at the White Sands Missile Range by military police the Air Force wrote those off as being um, hysteria uh, and, and misidentification of the moon because of the Land sightings. But the first sightings were by a couple of MPs uh, in, within hours of the sightings in Land. They talked about something that came down close to the ground. They could see it silhouetted against the mountains behind, behind the object. So clearly it wasn't the moon. It wasn't Venus, as the Air Force claimed. It was something much closer and something was much closer to the ground. And the Air Force dismissed it and said, well, the MPs were very young. They twenty, 20, 21 years old. And uh, they got caught up in the hysteria of the time. And I'm thinking, no, they couldn't have been caught up in the hysteria of the time because there wasn't social media. There wasn't Im- immediate access to this information about the sightings in Level Land as they were happening, as we'd have today. You'd have everybody on their cell phone saying, geez, you know, come out here. Look what's going on. Um it, it didn't get reported until the next morning. So they had, they had no knowledge of this. So they couldn't have been caught up in the hysteria. I talked to one of the MPs. Um, and he just, he told me exactly what they'd seen. And of course, that's recorded in, in, in the book Level Land. But the thing that really annoyed me was the, the dismissal of them saying, well, they were poorly trained, and they were young men, and they just really didn't know what was going on. And I'm thinking, yeah, they're 20, 21 years old. I think I think uh, Glenn Toy, who was the one I talked to, I think he was 21 in uh, 1957. And I'm thinking, I'm in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot and an aircraft commander at 19. I think George H.W. Bush was a, um, uh, a pilot in the Navy at 19 during the Second World War. So a great deal of responsibility is placed on the shoulders of very young individuals. And there's not a second thought about that uh, the, the thing that's always cracked me up we had a, one of the helicopter pilots in the flights we called him we called him papa because he was the oldest pilot flying with us he was 23 and so we're thinking the oldest guy is 23 so we were all you know 20 21 22 years old uh, i think i was the youngest pilot in the unit at the time But the dismissal of the testimony simply because they were young men is just just preposterous. And that's kind of the attitude of the Air Force. What can we do to dismiss the cases or make it look like it's something that it's not? And that we we see that time after time after time when you look at the Air Force files and you go through the files and you say, you know, this sighting really isn't identified as ball lightning or Venus coming down and landing 150 feet away from the the guys in the uh, in the jeep on at White Sands. So we take a look at all of that sort of thing.
1: Now, like you say, you've got multiple sightings happening over hours and over a quite a large space as well. That's always a good thing when it comes to data. And as for a researcher and an investigator, you can actually say, well, they saw it here and they saw it here. Then they saw this over here as well. Is that something that you've managed to see that there could be any prosaic explanation for is there something you've looked at and thought well possibly it could be this but ultimately you're obviously leaning towards a more et explanation
0: with level land you've got it interacting with the environment stalling the car engines so what kind of natural phenomenon or mechanism do we have do we have a 1957 that would do that in my research i found that the japanese during the second world war were Experimenting with magnetic effects and seeing if they could st- stop an engine with a, a magnetic ray, if they could get too close enough to it. Because if you can knock the other guy's fighter planes out of the sky with a magnetic ray from a distance, you're, you're way ahead. I think they managed to get it to work up to ten feet. Okay. It just they just could not get beyond. I guess the inverse square law, which is you know the uh, farther away you get, that you reduce it by a square as opposed to doubling it. But they couldn't get beyond that. So we know of no mechanism that we have, and I don't think there's anything in the technology today that we have that would do that. And it would be interesting to say, well, you know, it was just something wrong with the car. In fact, the Air Force pulled that out in level and pa- Pedro Sacito had, had his truck prepared, I think, the day before the sightings. And after the sightings, it took it back in to have it looked at, and they found a piece of metal in the rotor, which could have shorted it shorted out. The, uh, in the distributor could have shorted out the um, firing of the of the spark plugs. But then you have to ask yourself, well, why did it only manifest itself once? And why only when this object was close by? And once the object was gone, well, then I can start my truck again. And then you have all the others that report the same thing. So we know yeah. of no mechanism. The Air Force... I think I, I, you mentioned Heinick and I think Heineck at once once had said about the Leveland sightings. Well, you can you can eliminate the pos- Pedro Sito sighting, and I'm thinking, well, no, you really can't. And he said and the other one would be a coincidence, but when you get the two coincidences, then you're moving it pretty much outside the realm of coincidence. And then when we begin talking about people identified at 13 separate locations, at least that we know of. Uh, then you've moved it way beyond coincidence. So there is no mechanism that explains the sightings in terrestrial fashion. And I think that's an important point with the with the uh the level and sightings, is we have no terrestrial explanation that accounts for all the um reported malfunctions of vehicles and the sightings of the object. Right? I Maybe mean, it's a glowing red. Um, I think Saucedo called it torpedo shaped. Other people call it egg shaped. And I'm thinking, you know, that's probably a matter of perspective where you were when you saw the object, how you looked at it. If you look at, um, you know, like a tanker truck for straight on, it, it looks like a big cigar shaped object. But if you look at it from an angle, then you begin to get egg shaped or other looking shapes to it so it's a matter of perspective not the craft changing shape but it's just a matter of perspective and we have an awful lot of discussion of what it looked like and how long it was visible and what it did when it was on the ground now we couple, if we could have coupled it to the landing trace case then we've got an even greater body of evidence about it so we we had an opportunity there to investigate this case properly but the air force at that time was more interested in explaining cases and keeping the public misinformed about UFOs than it was in actually investigating UFOs. Uh, Two or three days later, on November 6th, I think it was, a guy named um, James Stokes was driving from Alamogordo, the um, uh, Holloman Air Force Base, to El Paso, Texas. And if you look at your map, it's what, an hour and a half, two hours from Alamogordo to El Paso, and you go through a little town called Oro Grande. And as he approached Oro Grande, his radio began to fade out and he was wondering what was going on. Then his engine sputtered and quit and he pulled over the side of the road. And he's sitting there behind uh, six or seven other cars. And they're watching an A-shaped object as it flies around overhead for a moment. When the object disappeared, of course, he got into his car. And I don't know if he continued on to El Paso and then went home that night. But when he got home to Alamogordo, he called Jim Lorenzen who was with Lorenz and the leader of the Aerofenauer Research Organization, they were based in Alamogordo at the time. And he went to see them and they noticed he had a slight like sunburn on half of his face and one of his arms. And if you remember Close Encounters of the Third Third Kind, uh, Richard Dreyfus had that similar problem, much more pronounced, like, from, from reading it, much more pronounced than what, what Stokes experienced. But here's another group of sightings with multiple witnesses again and multiple car stories and, and another effect of the UFO. And the Air Force spent a lot of time maligning uh, James Stokes, who was an engineer working at uh, Holloman Air Force Base. And his bosses at, at the base were saying, well, he's an engineer working for us. He spent 20 years in the Navy and Um, He doesn't have a a, he wasn't a licensed engineer, but he was doing engineering stuff. And his bosses are saying, yes, he's an engineer. And the Air Force that came in out was, well, we couldn't find a degree for him for Air Force. So we can't trust what he has to say because he's embellishing his resume. He's working as an engineer. Whether he's got a degree or not is irrelevant. He's got a position where he is called an engineer on an Air Force base. So you can see how they tried to. uh, um, Belittle the witnesses and reduce their importance and their credibility by uh, smearing their reputations. And, and you can see in many other cases, them doing the same things with other witnesses, doing everything they can to make the person look like a, an egotist or somebody who's jumping on the bandwagon or somebody who's not very bright. And you get into the depth of the person and you learn there's a great deal more to them than just the, the smear thrown out by the Air Force.
1: Uh, Kevin, you read my mind when you brought up the the effects, the physical effects of close contact, because that was going to be my next question. So it's interesting you had that. You say sunburn effects, so these objects were clearly within a range or causing some sort of of interference that was affecting the kind of human skin. Was there any lasting effects you found out from people that maybe lasted a lot longer into later life? That was there any cancers or rare diseases?
0: In in Level Land, no. The 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 sunburn effect on Stokes faded in a matter of hours. In fact, when the Air Force showed up to investigate uh, a couple of days later, his skin tone had returned to normal. There was no evidence of the reddening of of the sunburn effect. There's another story that one of the MPs was not available for the Air Force investigation. I think his name was Will Banks. And the story is he was in the hospital. But what they told the Air Force was that we gave him a three-day pass. And I'm thinking, yeah, we know that there's going to be an investigation. We know the guy's coming down. And now we put him on a three-day pass. Now, if you're on a three-day pass, and I know this from my military experience, you have to leave a phone number. You have to be, they have to be able to contact you. So even if the person who granted the three-day pass didn't know the Air Force was coming down to investigate, he would have learned when he got there and he would have been uh, recalled, recalled Will Banks. I believe it's willbanks Will Banks to to holloman air force base so he could be interviewed the other thing is a three-day pass has a limitation of how far you can travel and so he would have been basically in the local area the story is from the Lorenzans is he was in the hospital and he was in the hospital because of the effects but there was no lasting effects we move into the realm of the cash landrum sighting in 1980 where there were the apparent lasting effects um uh John Schuessler, I think it is, has done a great deal of work in investigating that case. Uh, Kirk Collins on his blog um, has a great deal of information about the Cash Landrum case. Uh, if you go to your search engine and you just type in Cash Landrum, I think you it'll take you to all the information that's available on this. Philip Klass said that the effects experienced by the uh, two women and the young boy were pre-existing conditions, and, uh, but it doesn't seem that's quite accurate because it seems that some of the the uh, later effects, and I think there may have been some cancer involved in there. I'm not, I'm not sure because I haven't spent a lot of time investigating that case. But I think there was some uh, cancer effects there and were lasting throughout their lives. And there have been cases where people have suffered um, more, debilitating effects and was was exhibited in uh, in level land so we have a range of those sorts of things and that's the other thing there's all these subsets of of ufology and i'm chasing one now where people were trying to take pictures or video with their cell phones of ufos and the camera failed camera worked fine before the ufo was there camera worked fine after the ufo was gone but when they were trying to video the the UFO the camera didn't work. Sometimes it gets sound. You can hear the sound. You can hear what they're saying, and you can hear all the sound in the background, but the the image of the UFO is is gone, and that sort of thing. And so I've been looking into those cases. There are quite a few of those where the the cameras have failed on that. So that's another kind of side effect of of a close approach of a UFO.
1: I am delighted to welcome a new sponsor to the podcast, VinoVest. As you all know, I've got a young family and I'm always looking at ways I can save and invest for the future. Fine wine has long been a cornerstone of wealth generation and preservation. The problem? Historically, it's been reserved for the ultra-wealthy. VinoVest is changing that. VinoVest is a platform allowing investors to own 100% of their portfolio and easily buy, sell or drink from their collection of fine wines. After missing out on all those next big things to invest in, I'm always looking for what is the next big player in the industry. I was amazed at how easy it was to get started in diversifying your investment portfolio. Wine has one third the volatility of the stock market and has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualised returns, proving that the returns can be as robust as your favourite red. Vinovest makes it easy to acquire new investments, equipped with a team of world-class sommeliers who evaluate wine and determine which ones will gain value over time. You own the wines in your portfolio outright. You can buy, sell and even drink them whenever you want enjoy historical returns, direct ownership of world-class wines, portfolio diversity and robust recession resistance. Go to zen.ai forward slash that ufo pod zero that's the number zero the link is also in the description to receive two months of fee-free investing that's two months of fee-free investing it's time to start investing with Vinovest today. (laughs) Uh, one event that I suppose we were just just before camera phones became mass manufactured um, or even available was the Phoenix Lights, of course, and that's the kind of thing we would have loved to have seen more footage from. There was a huge fallout from the Phoenix Lights event in the mid-90s because so many people in the, the city saw these lights, they saw what they reported as a huge triangle or V-shape flying over overhead. Was there any similar fallout from Leveland where the people of the town were scared? Did they report it? Was there anything that kind of carried on afterwards?
0: There doesn't seem to be, and I've you know looked at an awful lot of the newspapers from from that time frame, and you're looking at it, it seemed to be more of an interest in the in the subject. There doesn't seem to be anybody really frightened by it. Those who were experienced it, it their car stalling, they were frightened because they didn't understand what was going on. But for the people in the area around that in level land in Lubbock in the, in the West Texas and the panhandle, there doesn't seem to be any long lasting, um, fright. And I, I said, you brought that up. I wonder if that might be a result of the uh, the Lubbock lights, which was Lubbock, of course, right there by level land. It took place in 1951. So they had some experience with these sorts of phenomenon being reported and there's no lasting effect uh, to anybody. So I think they looked at it more in the realm of oh, not this kind of thing again, as opposed to oh my God, what's happening around here? And I think, and I, I think as we move into um, our time frame, when we're all experienced with movies and science fiction of of. Um, uh, alien visitation and that sort of thing. There's an awful lot of documentaries on UFOs, and I think a lot of people realize, you know, this stuff's been going on, if if we count from, from 1947 for 75 years, if we take it back to the Second World War where the Foo Fighters and the, the ghost rockets in Scandinavia and the Northern Europe in 1946, you know, it's been going on even longer, and there's really been no adverse effect. You can point to very few people who were injured by close approaches of UFOs, and that's usually a side effect not something that is done purposely. We had, um, we we can look at the uh, Thomas Mantell case from January of 1948. He was killed chasing a UFO. I believe now, based on the documentation we've been able to secure over the years, and I'm at odds with a number of my my colleagues in the field, I believe what he saw was a skyhook balloon. And I believe it was launched in Minnesota a day or so earlier. And if you watch the wind patterns, it would have been pretty much where um, Mantel saw it. And the problem wasn't that the UFO, whatever it might have been, took any action to stop Mantel. But Mantel violated one of the regulations. Uh, he was he climbed too high without benefit of oxygen. And I did, a, I did some research into both anoxia and hypoxia, which one is the complete lack of oxygen in the blood. And the other was a reduced oxygen in blood, which has all kinds of effects on the brain. And at I think at uh, 24,000 feet without supplemental oxygen, the average person has a useful consciousness of about 10 minutes. If you get about 2,000 feet above that, you've got a useful consciousness of about four minutes. And if you get to 29,000 feet, it's like 29 seconds. But the problem is Mantell didn't climb directly to 25,000 feet or whatever. He did it in gradual stages. So he was up, around, they were circling at about 20,000 feet at one point. And the wingmen with, um, Mantell started to experience, or one of them did starting experience the hypoxia and they broke off the intercept and Mantel says, well, I'm going to go to 25,000 feet and circle for 10 minutes. And if I can't get any closer, then I'll break it off. He didn't make it to twenty-five thousand feet. He passed out with the aircraft timed to cl- uh, trimmed to climb, and at about thirty thousand feet, the torque of the engine pulled it over into a power dive, and it disintegrated. The aircraft disintegrated about uh, nineteen thousand feet, based on the stresses on the airframe that it was not designed to withstand. So he was, if if I am correct, he he was um, killed chasing a. Skyhook balloon. If my colleagues are correct, he was killed chasing a flying saucer, but the flying saucer, the UFO took no action against him. So no matter what the object was, the the result Of The aircraft accident was Mantell violation of orders, which said above 14,000 feet you're required to use oxygen. And he didn't. Although the aircraft was equipped for oxygen, the oxygen had not been charged and he may not have had his oxygen mask with him because the flight was scheduled to be at 5,000 feet. So there was no need for the oxygen equipment.
1: I have a couple of colleagues, Dave Partridge and Graham Rendell, who uh, actually want to speak to you, um, but they are um, specialists from the UK, especially when it comes to historical um, UFO cases. Graham's got a fantastic book out about the Foo Fighters that you mentioned of World War II. Um, but I'll, I'll pass that information on to you at the end. But they would love to speak to you about that Mantell case as well. What, what I would like to know, Kevin, is what can these historical events like Leveland, like Roswell, that we're, you've got a new book coming out about, you say as well, what can they teach us about the, the phenomenon today and help us understand what may be happening?
0: What we're looking at is investigations that took place at the time. So information was gathered at the time. And then we've got subsequent investigations conducted by both military uh, and civilians through the, through the years. So we've gathered a great deal of data. And what we see is um, an effort to suppress the information by uh, the American government, and I think maybe the B- British government and other governments around the world to suppress the information. And I know the Air Force, the Australians were going to investigate UFOs based on reading Don Kehoe's book, uh, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, or one of the, one of those books. And so the Air Force officers contacted American officers about UFOs, flying saucers. And the Americans' attitude was, oh, there's nothing to it. You can't believe a thing Kehoe says, don't do it. Turns out, if you go back and you research Ke- Kehoe's book carefully, you see that most of what he printed, although he couldn't name all the sources he had because they were talking to him off the record, so to speak, Uh, the information was accurate. So you see our Air Force, the US Air Force, manipulating the Air Forces in other countries to to not do uh, solid investigations. But by going back and studying these cases, we learn an awful lot about not only what was going on, we get some clues about propulsion, we get some some clues about other aspects of it. But the thing that's really important, I think, is if you're told repeatedly something is impossible, you probably don't attempt it. But if you realize it is possible and you're not sure how it's done, you begin to try to figure out how to do it yourselves. So if we could, we are, we are blessed with the information that interstellar flight is possible, we see it as impossible given the distances and the technology we possess at the time We just can't really do it. But if somebody else has figured out how to do it, that means there's a means to it. And then we begin looking for the means rather than not looking whatsoever. And I think that's one of the important things that comes out of that is learning something new about that. It tells us that we're not alone in the universe, but it also suggests a way that we may be able to uh, explore part of our galaxy ourselves. Uh, And I think that's one of the important things that come out of it. And we get hints about it, we learned that the Air Force at one time was going to set up spectroscopic cameras around the country to see if they could photograph the light coming from UFOs and get a spectroscopic analysis. I'm not sure exactly what that would have revealed to them, but it might have given them a hint about the propulsion systems, you know, uh, something like that, or or if we got a glowing object, the the uh, metallic structure of the craft. I, I don't know what, what all it would have told us if they had the cameras out and located. Uh, we might have gotten photographs of the object independently from two or three locations, and that would tell us a great deal about its capabilities. How high was it flying? How fast it was going? How large was it? All those sorts of things we could have divined from a proper investigation. And you can see in the Project Blue Book files, as we look through those, these sorts of things were attempted, uh, but only haphazardly. They were, were going to put out some cameras, but well, we got one camera, so that's not much. Uh, Ed Ruppelt, who was the Uh, Chief of Project Blue Book at one time, talked about the green fireballs, which were seen over the desert southwest in great numbers in the late 1940s. And they were going to set up cameras to photograph the green fireballs. Apparently, they did set up a camera, and apparently they got pictures because there's hints to it, but the pictures never show up. We don't know where the pictures went. We don't know who has those pictures. We don't know where they went. If we do have a crashed UFO, as, as Roswell seems to suggest and we can figure out how it works, then we take a big step over our competitors in the world, but we also learn how to travel interstellar distances. And I think the technology may be so far beyond our capability to understand at this point, we haven't figured it out. And the best example, it worked much better in the 1990s, is if you take a VCR, a uh, power pack and a TV set back to Merlin the Magician, and you show him the videotape, which is basically a black ribbon, and, and if you know how to decode it, show him how you, you put it in the machine and you can see pictures and sound, the color pictures and sound. Um, to duplicate that, he's got to understand two things that are invisible, electricity and magnetism. And he just did not have the cultural elements to understand that in, in the time of Merlin the Magician. And I think we may be at that point, we're presented with this technology, and we do not have the the technological ability to understand what all we've been been presented with. I think we continue to work on it. And as our technology evolves, we apply it. But I don't think we figured much of it out yet.
1: People who listen to the podcast will appreciate I like a good analogy, so I like that Merlin one. I'll probably steal that going forward at times, Kevin, if you don't mind. Um,
0: Just credit me with it.
1: (laughs) Always, always give credit, always will. And if I don't, people can pull me up on that. Um, You've mentioned there, obviously, some common factors. Is there anything you've noticed in your years of writing, investigation and research that have given you any clues as to the craft's origin? You've mentioned interstellar travel people potentially visiting from different galaxies what for you is the your best summary you can put together of what this phenomenon may be
0: i would say it's not interplanetary meaning it doesn't come from inside the solar system because we pretty well surveyed all the bodies in the solar system that could have intelligent life on it producing these sorts of things and we realize that jupiter and saturn are impossible the same with uranus and uh, neptune pluto is way out there and a cold world. There's really nothing apparently on Mars, Venus. You land your spacecraft on Venus and it's going to melt. And uh, Mercury is kind of out of the question. Some of the moons around the, the planets, a Titan, for example, around sight, Saturn, um, would be more Earth-like, but then you've got a problem with um, the temperatures and things like that. So I think, I think we've pretty well ruled out interplanetary flight. And I think in the 1950s, late 1940s, 1950s, they they were thinking in terms of interplanetary flight as opposed to interstellar. When we move beyond that, I would guess, and it's only a guess, that they would come from within our galactic neighborhood, Um, 100 light years away, 50 light years away. I don't know how fast they can travel. I don't know how they would maneuver. They may be able to cross the galaxy in a matter of hours, based on their technology or, or a way of warping space to uh, shorten those distances. I don't know. And I and if I had an answer to that, I'd be really, really rich, and I wouldn't be doing podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be on my mega yacht having a good time somewhere, or flying around in my private aircraft, uh, flipping off people. I don't know. <laughs> But, but I mean, the point is, I, I really don't know. We used to say that the only real clue we had was from the Betty Hill star map from her and Barney Hill's abduction in, the, in 1961. And, and she produced this star map and Marjorie Fish created a 3D model and pegged it as being Zeta 1, Zeta 2 reticuli, which is a double star system, some uh, 30, 37, 38 point light, 37.5 light years from Earth. Uh, but that information is flawed, because according to Betty Hill, it was a 3D representation she saw, and she was she was drawing it in two dimensions, so that would have distorted it. Marjorie Fish, when she did her work, eliminated all red dwarf stars because she deduced there would be nothing on around a red dwarf that would have be, be of interest to a spacefaring race my counter argument would be that there may not be any civilized planets around that, but there may be some element that is crucial for them that they could find in one or two of these systems. So it may be important for them to look at red dwarfs. I don't know. Um, There has been some work done suggesting better distances to those planet or those star systems that uh, Marjorie Fish identified. Uh, are not where she thought they were so the star map is kind of distorted there but that was the only clue we really had if you remember the movie alien the star system they go into is zeta one zeta two reticuli they mentioned that i caught that <laughs> some years later as i was watching the movie. I said, oh my god they're there uh and and that's where the they found the alien <laughs> but i don't think that's relevant but i i really don't know and i i just can't say i i would say that they come from inside our galaxy our galaxy is, what, 110,000 light years across and 30,000 light years deep or something like that. And we're on the outer edges, the fringes of the galaxy. Uh, so you could be talking about somebody who's 100,000 light years away. And then you move to other galaxies. I think the nearest galaxy is Andromeda, and it's, what, 2.5 million light years away, so I can't see them traversing that distance. But if there's a way of bending space, maybe it, it, it is all things are possible. I don't know. Uh, so I don't know where they're coming. That's a long-winded answer to say, I don't know.
1: <laughs> no, that's fair enough. But do you know what gives me a little bit of hope is, like you say, when you think about It it seems impossible and incomprehensible that we could traverse that that distance, that level of space. But like you say, when Merlin saw the videotape and saw that black ribbon and then saw pictures on a screen, that would have seemed impossible as well. So there just might be that something that one day is really common that we don't quite understand yet what i would like to put to you kevin just before we get to some listener questions i heard you on on hubbard hugh's unexplained radio show a couple of weeks ago and you said you've you, there's been a lot of progress people have talked about that has been made in recent years and some folks are getting really excited we're going to get some form of disclosure from the government something like that but you said like others have that you've seen this before you've experienced this that it's it's potentially going to just fizzle away the government are going to keep things classified they're not going to get the reports that are due is there anything you have seen that you think maybe this time something could or maybe a little bit different that we get some form of progress on this subject
0: you have to look at it from the point of view of the deep state and you have to look at from the point of view of the purpose of the deep state is to keep the deep state in power and keep those in those positions of power well financed and they have no motivation to release the information. There's absolutely nothing they gain by releasing the information. And in fact, it could undercut their power. I did a book called UFOs in the Deep State that came out, what, a year ago, something like that, and looked at this in depth. And you know, people say, well, why do they continue to keep it classified? And if you look at the way at least our government works here in the United States, um, you have a transition of power at the very top, the president, every, every eight years at least, Um, sometimes it's only four years, sometimes it's eight years, depending on the president, uh, and, and, uh, the elections, but the people they bring into the government, you see the names coming up again and again and again, uh, people who were in the Clinton administration in the 1990s are showing up in the Biden administration in some of the top level spots and the bureaucrats stay there all the time, you know, so bureaucrats who came to, came to work in, um, the Clinton administration may are still working in their positions in the in the Biden administration, and they want to maintain their power and maintain their elite status. And I think that's one of the reasons we see the persistence of the secrecy. Anytime a technologically advanced civilization contacts a more primitive civilization, that primitive civilization ceases to exist. Not necessarily through contact or warfare, warfare or conquest, the mere contact. And there's a a really great example from anthropological history where uh, uh, anthropologists went to uh, study a primitive tribe. And the tribe have an underlying sociological structure where if you needed a stone axe, you had to go through a ritual or a series of steps to get permission from the leaders of that society to use the stone axe the anthropologist brought a number of steel axes with him and to induce people to talk with him about their society and things like that. He'd give them a, a steel axe. He has now undercut one of the underpinnings of that society in unintentionally, but he radically altered that society by the introduction of a steel axe, which is a far superior device than a stone axe. And I think they understand this, that the mere presence of this technology would radically alter our civilizations around the world. And if they introduce any of that technology to us, it's going to change the power structure. I think they fear that. I think the only way we're going to get disclosure is if the alien creatures decide it's time to let us know, and they land somewhere where the government can't cover it up, and the news media is there to Uh, interview them. Of course, we have to be careful we don't end up with uh, To Serve Man, which was a wonderful Twilight episode. (laughs) But uh, the the point simply is, I, I think that the way things are right now, there is no motivation by those in power to reveal the information they have about UFOs. And we have hints about how extraordinary this information is, because we can see it in the way they bungled the investigation, but the information we've been able to gather since then that shows where their mistakes were made and how they were manipulating the data to keep us all in the dark. And it starts, it starts essentially in the United States with Roswell and it continues on from that. We had the, the, um, the Robertson panel in 1953, which was CIA sponsored, and the conclusions were obviously written before the guys went to the work of studying the flying saucers and said, Well, there's nothing to it, and we need to just stop the mystique of flying saucers. And we saw the same thing with the Condon Committee, which I think the skeptics still hold up as here's a scientific investigation of UFOs. And yet the conclusions were written before the investigation began. An Air Force officer wrote to Uh, the Condit Committee and said, here's what we'd like you to find. And they wrote back and said, yeah, we can do that. Uh, I've got the letter, a copy of the letter up on my blog at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Just type in Hitler letter and it'll take you to that information.
1: I'll put the blog address in the. I'm just making a note of that now for the listeners because I tend to forget those in the description of the podcast as well, folks. And listen, on that, Kevin, time will tell. Hopefully we do get that progress. But I've said on the podcast before, I completely understand folks who have been in this, involved in this subject for a lot longer than myself and others who listen, that why they they are trepidatious and why they say they've seen this kind of thing happen before. So hopefully we get something different, but I can see both points of view. Um, let's get to some listener questions, Kevin, in the time we have remaining. Um, the first question is from Matt, and Matt wants to know, did the egg-shaped objects at Leveland give off any noises?
0: There was discussion of people hearing sounds, yes. There was. Some, it wasn't universal, but they did hear roars. They did hear, hear, did, did hear sounds, yes. There, is, there was noise given off. Uh, not only the electromagnetic effects, but also noise, and, the, and, of course, the very bright lights.
1: Was the noise reported as mechanical? Like you said, a roar? Would it be something more mechanical? or?
0: No, it was it, more of a roar. More, of, I think you, more aligned with a jet engine type thing. But it was that kind of thing. And not everybody reported sound. Okay.
1: And I think as well, you mentioned earlier about perception. And at the time, that people knew about flying saucers from the headlines in early science fiction. But it would have still been very much one's interpretation of what they were hearing or what they were seeing. Not like now, because we've got 75 years of of stories and books. And we've got Hollywood movies that we can interpret these things a little bit easier. So it still could have been something maybe a bit more... Cause a jet engine type noise or a roar isn't normally what we associate. Is it with a UFO or a UAP? You tend to associate low hums or, or f- vibrations?
0: Well, I think that, you know, it's it really, again, I think it's the, the person and how they describe describe the sounds. And, and oftentimes the sound is sort of a secondary effect. They're just not really listening. They're looking at, at the thing in awe. Uh, you, you go through the reports of the people carefully and you can find find hints of that sort of thing it's kind of like the sheriff if you go through an awful lot of the books uh, published after 1957 you which mentioned level and it and, and my own books do the same thing say the sheriff saw it but it was just a streak of light in the distance and now i got into it in depth and it's not a streak of light in the distance. It's a a, a um, solid object seem much closer. So I think we have to look at all of that sort of thing. Sometimes it's the interpretation of the witnesses. Sometimes it's the interpretation of the writers who are, are reporting on the story. Sometimes it's the, the government uh, changing things around a little bit. And, and and the writers do that, too. They they assume things um, based on what they're reading. They put their own interpretations on it. And sometimes if those interpretations are wrong, the next guy who's reading it, puts that same interpretation on it, uh, because he read it in another book. And that's why I do something called chasing footnotes periodically, you read something about, in you know, a book, and there's a footnote. So you look at, well, what's that footnote saying, you go to that source, which may lead you to another source, which leads you to another source, which finally leads you to the original source. And the original source story is not quite the same as been reported in the in the latest book. So you have to look at all of those sorts of things as well.
1: It's a really interesting point. I think many of us, like you say, would take that at face value and say, yep, this is what's written. There's a footnote and, like you say, a little bit of digging. And you find out that's that's potentially changed. So interesting point. Um, Mike has a question. During your research into the 1964 Lonnie Zamora incident that occurred near Sirocco, New Mexico, did you hear anything about Lonnie Zamora having a telepathic experience? No. Nothing not on at that.
0: all. I, I, I don't think there's anything to that. I did hear that he was supposedly a drunk, but that's not true either. I think that was another way of belittling the, um, the sighting. Lonnie Zamora was a very quiet religious man. And I think this experience frightened, frightened him. The Socorro, uh, experience frightened him. But in, in the book I did on Socorro, we look at in depth some of the explanations for it. and We find out that something else that's important is it's not a single witness case. There are other witnesses that, that, uh, uh, witnessed aspects of the case either just before Zamora's sighting or uh, hours afterwards. Sometimes it's, it's just a roar in the sky or a blue flame in the sky, and others, others, it's it's something much better. But uh, you have to look at the whole area in uh, 19, uh, April of 1964. That that short period of time. Uh, around the sighting, and you get some very good information about what he had seen. And, of course, there was a big roar associated with that craft.
1: Next question is from Ryan, and Ryan wants to know, could the genetic bottleneck that occurred roughly 70,000 years ago have been due to extraterrestrial intervention? Do you think hybridization could be a goal of such intervention?
0: I really don't know. I haven't studied, I did study anthropology and I understand how some of these things work, but I just haven't looked at that in depth. It's one of the many, many side facets of of the UFO field, you know, like crop circles and cattle mutilations and abductions and all the crash retrievals. And I've spent most of my research looking at more of the contemporary sightings and the crash retrievals and the, the sightings that have multiple witnesses and multiple chains of evidence, as opposed to looking something that's very speculative about what they might have done or how they might have manipulated the human race at some point.
1: Fair enough. Uh, Next up is Jason out in Los Angeles asks, in your opinion, what would be a legitimate or justifiable reason for any world government to keep the full truth of UFOs from its citizens? What would be a reason that would make you think, yeah, it's best we don't tell the general public about that?
0: I would have said uh, years ago it may be a religious aspect that would cause undue panic or the mere knowledge that there's alien creatures out there that may be on the brink of invading the earth that would have caused panic. I think that pretty well is untrue. I, I've talked to a number of theologians about this and they think it would not affect the religions all that much. Uh, and I think that we're all now sophisticated enough to understand that if these things have been around for 75 or 80 years, that the invasion probably isn't coming Anytime soon has done nothing to affect my life, and my so I, I'm not really worried about it. I think the motivation again, you know, that was always a question: what's the motivation for the governments suppressing the information? And I think it just has to do with them maintaining their own power and their fear that if the information gets out, it's going to undermine their power in some way. And they're doing everything they can to maintain their power and their financial positions in the world.
1: On a similar topic, Gnosis, who is a big contributor to the podcast on the, the Discord channel as well, says, Kevin clearly believes in a deep state infrastructure that has kept the topic secret over many years. Why have we had no smoking gun, whistleblowers or deathbed confessions? Do you think it's because those at the top are still confused by the nature of the phenomenon? Or like you've said a little bit there, Kevin, could it just be there are dark aspects to the phenomenon that create a natural justification to keep it secret?
0: First of all, I would I would say that there really are no deathbed confession because a deathbed confession, by definition, must be the the admission of committing a crime at some point in your life. Um, so if you're on your deathbed and you start talking about flying saucers, it really isn't a deathbed confession by the legal definition. I always like to throw that out for no good reason
1: whatsoever. <laughs> That's fair.
0: But but I think I think that there have been some interesting things. Uh, Edwin Easley, who I mentioned earlier, was a, the provost marshal in Roswell. Uh, literally on his deathbed, mentioned the creatures to his family, and yet when that information is transmitted into the public arena, you see the skeptics doing everything in their power to belittle it. Well, you know. Uh, randall himself didn't witness him saying that no i didn't but his family did and this is what they told us i think the problem is we have not gotten somebody who's really on the inside and can present some kind of evidence for that we've got a lot of people that have talked about that some of the people's credibility is not very great others credibility is interesting but all we have are rumors um about it i think it it's it's that sort of thing that that we're dealing with something that is basically unbelievable you believe in flying saucers men from other planets coming to earth that's unbelievable and i think that to take that step over it it requires more than somebody in a deathbed confession environment saying yes this is what i saw and what i did we need something more to be presented you know if he said um Uh, go to my safe. And there's this metal, if you wad it up in a ball and you let it go, it unfolds itself. Well, then, then you've got something more than just their word on what happened. So I think that's one of the problems we run into is you need something more than just these stories. We've got lots of those stories. And some of them are from people who are very credible. And some of them are from people who just really aren't very credible at all.
1: And final listener question from Dave Smethurst. What are Kevin's views on USOs, so unidentified submerged objects, and the possibility of underwater bases? I believe there was a lot of activity off the coast of Vietnam during that conflict.
0: Well, I I saw none of that during that conflict because I was busy doing other things. (laughs) But... uh... And, and there's another subset of the UFO phenomena I really haven't looked at. I will say the Shag Harbor case, where the thing was seen to plunge into the into the ocean, and I think of it as more a forced landing as opposed to a crash, because apparently they repaired the craft and they got out of there some, some days later. I just really haven't looked at that in depth. But it makes sense if you have the capability of traveling interstellar distances. You may have the capability of hiding your, uh, your base Under ocean, So it'd be very hard for us to detect or on the dark side of the moon or something like that. But I just really haven't looked into that in in depth at all.
1: It sounds like you've got plenty of books left in you. So I think there's some some food (laughs) for thought within that, though, Kevin, even if you are planning on slowing down, like you say. Listen, Kevin, I just want to ask you one more thing about the book Leveland. What do you want people to take away from reading this book?
0: What they ought to take away from is how the government manipulated the data. That had we done a proper investigation in 1957, we'd be having a whole different conversation about it. I think the evidence is there for something very, very extraterrestrial of having happened there. I think it ranks right below the Roswell case because of the number of witnesses and the possibility of, of good, solid evidence. Uh, the interactions with the environment. So I think looking at that and seeing how the government manipulated the information and how they kept us from uh, understanding it. And I should point out, this was not a phenomenon related just to Leveland, Texas in 1957. The book also covers the French sightings from 1954 and the South American sightings from 1954. And in fact, the very first case of a electromagnetic effect is from 1909 and is from England. So, we, you know, it covers a whole gambit of, of this kind of thing, the electromagnetic effects related to UFO sightings.
1: Kevin, uh, you've mentioned you've got a new book coming out uh, in March, which is going to be on Roswell, or it'll be in time for the 75th anniversary. I think it's due in by March. Was that right?
0: I have a book coming out in March, but it's about Project Moondust. Ah,
1: right, okay.
0: <laughs> and And, of course, Level Land is out now, and the... Um, the Roswell book will be out closer to the anniversary of the of the sighting in Roswell, which is July of nineteen. Well, it was in July of nineteen forty-seven. I think it is the, the third book in my cities trilogy, going with Roswell to Socorro now to and, and with Level Land. So it's all part of my series of uh, the um, cities trilogy. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll have the links in the description of how people can pick up Leveland. I'll have uh, Flying Disc Press, the links in there as well from Phil Manto, where those books are also available. And Kevin, is there any way people can follow you on any form of social media or would it be mainly be the blog spot?
0: I I try to stay away from social media because too many people say too many dumb things and get themselves in too much trouble. (laughs)
1: That is by, very true. By
0: posting rapidly, uh, the blog is uh, kevinrandall.blogspot.com. You type a different perspective into any search engine and it's usually going to come up first. And if you look, depending on the UFO sighting, sometimes it'll be, uh, comes up on the search engine as well in the first page or second page of the various places you can go.
1: Well, Kevin, it's been wonderful speaking with you. And I'd love to have you on again in future to talk about those other books.
0: Okay, I'd love to do it. Baroque and quite steampunk like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament. The little fucker hovered
1: right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd have some champagne and smoke to the floor. Meditative game state full on meta I can't imagine how it could have been any better I got to the top of the stairs and there it was Like you awake I was about to abduct you cuz
0: I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and then I climbed out the window after the help. And I walked up in my bed, and there was something on
1: my head, and everything was weird, and everything was wet. I helped up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream, and they thought it was my toys. And they thought it was my problems, and I think I should see therapy, and I don't know what it
0: is, because it doesn't really scare me.